right, and we're live. Sean, thanks for joining me today. Hey, Trent. It's great to be here, man. Yes, sir. Would you like to introduce yourself to the listeners? Sure. My name is uh, Sean Manso, and I founded an organization called the First Church of David Bowie. And uh, this year, I, I published a book. It's called uh, AP Psychedelics Going Beyond Set and Setting to Achieve Visionary Virtuosity, in which I describe in part the uh, the way the the FCDB, FCDB was developed and my uh, approach to working with psychedelics, which I call the phonomantic method. Excellent. So this might be a long tangent or a short tangent. You can take it as you will, but could you explain your journey through psychedelics and then hopefully having that culminate into what exactly the church of David Bowie is? Okay. So I'm going to, I'll try to keep it on track. I'm going to be taking some notes here to make sure I don't stray too far <laughs> off the topic. So I've got a, a, a long history with psychedelics going all the way back into the nineties. Um, I, exper I experimented with psychedelics and took them recreationally in college along with my, you know, like a lot, of, a lot of people, but I had an experience one night that, um, that, well, changed my life like it does to many people and for me what that looked like was I had a, a, an intuitive realization of, of something called emanationism and emanationism is this is this kind of ancient idea that was um, promulgated by the neoplatonists it's it's this idea that reality is organized in levels fractally self-similar levels from the universal mind all the way down to the to human consciousness that was something I, it was an idea I just sort of stumbled across after I took too much LSD. And when I found out that the, that that idea had historical antecedents, I started doing a lot of research and then I ended up writing my honors thesis about it. Um, after that, I didn't really do much of them for a good 20 years until in 2016, I uh, was kind of at a personal and professional crossroads. And I found out that there was an ayahuasca group that was meeting outside of Seattle, where I was living at the time. It was being run by a guy who had apprenticed with a Shibibo Indian down in Peru and ran it. He ran a very sort of tight ship, very, uh, very traditional kind of ceremony, you know, in the dark in a maloca, they're singing ikaros and everything. So I started going to see them and I ended up sitting with them 34 times. And in the course of that, uh, you know, the, one of the ideas in the ayahuasca space is that the, the spirit of the plant talks to you. You know, people will say, Mother Aya told me this. And so Aya told me that I was a priest from a long line of priests. And that's true. My dad is a married Roman Catholic priest. And um, as far as being from a long line of priests, I don't know about that, but I took her word for it. And she told me that I needed to find a way to put that into practice. Uh, I thought at first that that meant trying to become an ayahuascaro which I found interesting and, and kind of, uh, you know, the way that the I, what happens in, in an ayahuasca ceremony is that the, um, the practitioners sing to you in a, in a traditional ceremony, they sing these songs called Icaros and the Icaros are uh, songs that are taught to them by the plants that they've developed relationships with. As my friend like Matt, uh, the ayahuasca likes to say, the ayahuasca turns on the lights in the operating room, but it's actually the other plants that do the, do the, do the work, you know? I had never been a singer, but I was interested in, in singing. So that was an intriguing idea. But um, I also was unsure about the, you know, it's, it's a very rigorous kind of thing. You have to go for, mm -hmm. there's often a, a, you know, months or even years of celibacy and really austere diets and social isolation and stuff. And I wasn't sure that that was where I wanted to go. Um, in any event, at the time, there was one month where I couldn't go sit with them. And I decided to, to sit at home with some mushrooms instead that had been at the back of my freezer for a while. And I made up a little ceremony. I tried to pattern it after all the ayahuasca ceremonies that I've been to using my own playlist of songs. And as I, uh, you know, and I went through a few different things, it was all kind of very mellow. And then I put on a record by a band called uh, Neutral Milk Hotel, this indie rock band from the late nineties, they, they wrote a record called in the airplane over the sea, which is in a kind of magical realist way about trying to save Anne Frank from her terrible fate. When it got to a song called Oh Comely, something in my, the, my experience changed. I started, um, 
I started getting images, like really, really vivid images in my mind's eye of concentration camps. You know, I saw the, you know, the mud and the barbed wire and the buildings. And I, um, that the emotion of the song that I was listening to started to overtake me, this terrible sense of shame and sorrow and despair. And the stronger the emotion got, the more I, it seemed like I was actually feeling it in my body as a kind of electrical current. And, and it was undeniable that I felt some kind of energy flowing through my body. And that was, you know, I had a decent, I had maybe 50 trips under my belt at that point between ayahuasca and mushrooms and LSD and San Pedro and uh, MDMA. I mean, I, I'd been around the block, never had anything like this happen before. Um, and something told me to kind of hold on to the energy. So I was sitting in my chair and just rocking and with my fist bunched up. And when the song reached its climax, I took a great big breath and blew the energy. I felt like I'd been containing in my hand out into the room and then did the same with the other and then fell back and was just like, what was that? And so I, for the rest of the night, I started experimenting and I, I found that I could get different aesthetic effects from all these different songs, all these different songs on my spot on Spotify. And, you know, like aggressive songs gave you a certain kind of experience and you saw certain things and mellow and, or, or bittersweet songs gave you a different kind of experience. And I got really intrigued by that. And I started experimenting with it and started pushing the dosages higher and higher and started having more and more elaborate experiences that culminated in a, <laughs> I, I experimentally combined, um, Fairly at this point, I'm still, I was only probably still working with, with four grams of, uh, of cubensis, but I was working with a strain called penis envy, which is pretty strong, but I was combining it with pot and that combination is, can be a real ass kicker. And then you add in some hoppe, which is this, uh, tobacco snuff that has extra psychoactive ingredients and that gets, it gets stronger still, you know, but I had made this sigil and a sigil is a kind of magical symbol that encodes an intention. And for whatever reason, I, I had the, I wrote out, teach me to do magic, David Bowie. And I crossed out the vowels and I crossed out the remaining consonants and I combined them all into this sort of witchy looking, witchy looking glyph. And the idea is that you, you, you concentrate on that symbol at a moment of, of extremity. And some people run around the block till they're going to pass out. And some people bungee jump off of bridges and some people masturbate, but whatever it is at that, at the most intense moment, you stare at it. And it's supposed to imprint itself in your mind. And then from there become the seed, a seed for a new reality. So I decided that I was going to do my mushrooms with music thing. And at the pivotal moment of, of this particular song, I was going to concentrate on the sigil. So I did that. And I did it with a song called White Light, White Heat, this Velvet Oven Underground cover that David Bowie did. And nothing happened. And then the next song started playing and all of a sudden I had a full blast 3D lucid dreaming vision. And what I saw was myself on stage and the sigil that I made was on this giant screen behind me. And there were all these people in front of me and they were looking up, but they weren't looking at me. They were looking at the sigil and I was, I knew I was on mushrooms in the scene and so were all of they. And they were trying to do what I was doing in that moment, which was making an energetic connection to the, to the archetype, to the Jungian archetype that Bowie had come to represent in popular consciousness, which is the magician. And then what happened was something that's almost, it's almost kind of beyond description. There was a download, a, a tremendous rush of information in my, into my head. It's kind of like that. It was like that scene in the matrix where Neo is sitting in the, uh, the dentist chair and he's got the Jack in the back of his head. And then he, and then he looks up at Morpheus and he's like, I know Kung Fu. And I was like, I, I, I came out of that five minutes later and I had the blueprint for what could only really be described as a religion of the science fictional future. And it was a religion based on these kinds of uh, jukebox musical dance parties, these theatrical spectacles that were also somehow like a, like a workout class, like a psycho-spiritual workout. And I saw them happening in sort of these futuristic nightclubs. And then eventually I saw the, the vision sort of culminated in a, um, I was up in the air and looking down at this in, in, the, in the nighttime sky and looking down at this tremendous stadium thronged with people, tens of thousands of people, 50,000 people or more. And they're all watching a spectacle. It was kind of a combination between uh, 
Cirque du Soleil and an old school Van Halen concert and the Pink Floyd laser light show at the planetarium that was designed to create for them an experience of the divine. And I knew that every one of them was on mushrooms. And I thought about what the society would have to look like that could produce 50,000 people who could be on mushrooms in public and behave themselves and take part in a complex ritual like that and knew that that was the society that I wanted to live in. And so I started developing this show, a prototype, a working prototype for what that a theatrical spectacle designed to create an apprehension of the sacred might look like. One that you would watch and participate in while you were on mushrooms and, and do it alongside other people. And um, that's what I've been working on for the last five years. I, I, I came up with a, my working prototype is called the First Church of David Bowie's Shamanic Cabaret. And what it is, is a four hour theatrical extravaganza that takes you through the hero's journey multiple times. First, using a bunch of like hard rock, really masculine songs. And then through with a bunch of feminine uh, dancey songs all the way through the hero's journey, through all the stages. We can talk more about that if, if, you, if we need to elucidate that. And then there's a part about Anne Frank at the end. And so what I do, right, as, as part of that is, so as I, as I mentioned, my, my book is uh, subtitled Going Beyond Set and Setting to Achieve Visionary Virtuosity. And so let me briefly touch on that, right? So set and setting is what's generally taken as the optimal um, or, or, or the, the considerations that you need to have in order to have an optimal experience, right? You want to go into it with the, with the right mindset and you want to have the correct uh, or an optimal setting, which is generally like it's... In, in Leary's original definition of it, it was physical, mental, and then societal. And what that looks like, and in, in, in especially with the therapeutic model of psychedelics, is you sitting in a nicely appointed therapist's office, like laying on a couch with a blindfold on and with Bach in your earphones. And then like there's the therapist, but also there's somebody else there to hold your hand if you get nervous. That's like an optimal set and setting. And that goes so far, right? But what I'm offering is a kind of a new approach to psychedelics called the phonomantic method. And the phonomantic method builds on that set and setting and adds three more S's, structure, stress, and skill. And so what you're ultimately talking about is something that can develop you from, well, let me, so, and I'm trying to keep it on track. I'm not gonna, hopefully I'm- No, no worries. You're following it okay, all right? I'm tracking, so, yeah. So, so skill is your ability to, to do something uh, and, and get a desired outcome, right? And, and, and virtuosity is the ability to employ, to, to execute a difficult skill and make it look easy, okay? And in the psychedelic space, skill is the difference between being a passive recipient of the psychedelics effects, like just like laying back and like whatever happens, happens. And, and virtuosity is the ability to, uh, excuse me, so that's the path an unskilled use of psychedelics is that passive version, but what skill does is it allows you to become an active agent in how those effects manifest. It gives you the ability to actually control the experience to a, to a greater or lesser extent. Okay. And so what visionary virtuosity is, is by my definition is walking out on stage to perform in a theatrical production while you're on a super heroic dose of, of the, of psychedelic, which, by my definition, is anywhere between five and 10 grams of cubensis, turbo boosted with a three gram water extract of Syrian rue seeds, plus multiple hits of pot, plus multiple vape DMT. So you're on stage and you are remembering all the words to the songs. You're running lights by working foot switches. You're changing uh, costumes in between songs in the dark while moving in and out of visionary states at will, while maintaining a global awareness of the environment. And that's fairly unprecedented as far as I can tell. And, but the reason why, why I've done these performances to is to show that this is possible. It's not for everybody, you know what I mean? But it, but it, is, but it does give an idea of, of where we can go with these things. And the reason that I would suggest that people start thinking about this idea of psychedelic skill is this. Anything that you can do by yourself, virtually anything, can be intensified. But let me put it. Let me put it this way: the experience that you can have of anything that you can enjoy by yourself can be amplified by doing it alongside other people. 
whether that's going to see comedy in a club or going to see a live band or whatever, it's just more fun and more intense when you're alongside other people. And I think that, this, that that's going to prove to be true when it comes to the mystical experiences that psychedelics can induce. Right? However, for people to gather in groups to have these experiences together, and this is different than, than, like, a, than like an ayahuasca thing. And an ayahuasca thing, you're in a room but everybody's on their map by themselves in the dark and kind of going through their own thing. I'm talking about everybody participating and having sharing the same moment together, just the way they would in a movie or a concert or whatever. Right. In order for that to happen while people are on psychedelics, they have to have readily accessible and easily understandable activities that they can perform together. And they have to have a modicum of self-control. They have to have developed self-control so that if they start to have a difficult time, they can handle it and not become somebody else's problem, right? And that takes practice, and it takes and it takes um, it takes a, a a sort of systematic approach, and that is what I'm offering in my book. Is I just as I describe this this systematic approach, which is called the phonomantic method. So there you go. Yeah. No, I love it. I wrote down a few things, but the one that jumps to my mind immediately is that as I've been on my own psychedelic journeys and starting to educate myself and talking to different people is the importance of having actual rituals involved with the psychedelic practice. Because when you're in a psychedelic state, you're breaking down your normal patterns of cognition and allowing yourself to get into these heightened states of superflow or potentially pure consciousness, uh, depending on if you're going outward or inward and it's overwhelming and it can be hard if you don't have a ritual that you're participating in to ground you in what's going on and then also having a community of people to talk to and relay ideas with discuss things because i feel like if you have one of these really really heightened senses during your psychedelic trip it's easy to come back and think that you either know god or that there is no god I feel like those are kind of the two extremes and it's like you need those fellow companions to really sit down and talk with and be like, hey, this is what happened on my trip. What happened on your trip? Let's try to find some ground between us and come to a more objective reality of what is going on. And I talk about it a lot. It's like we need to create new rituals within society when these psychedelics are coming to fruition because the old rituals that we have are deeply entrenched in religions that are no longer super relevant to the general population. So I think that what you're doing is literally exactly, exactly that. You're creating entirely new rituals to fill this void. And I think it's hilarious that you called it the church of David Bowie, but I agree. I think that's exactly what it is. You're creating a church and it's not there to worship this judeo-christian god it's there to worship the cultivation of love and wisdom and to create a community that also wants to cultivate those things and help each other out along the way yeah so i I'd, I'd like to respond to a few of the things that you said um absolutely having a ritual in place serves as guardrails you know, it, it keeps you on track as opposed to just kind of want and, and, and structure creates coherence. You can actually, excuse me, you can get stuff done, right? In that if you, if you have tasks that you need to perform. And the thing about rituals is, is that they're repeated. They're not just one-offs. You do them again and again and again and again and again. And that way you get your performance in them gets better each time, right? Um, the, the thing about community anchoring is a reason to, um, one of the ways you can think about this sort of, uh, these, these group activities is, is that they're a kind of ordeal. They shouldn't mm -hmm. be, it shouldn't, it shouldn't be easy. I mean, in the first church of David Bowie, like what I do is, is I, is I designate, I use actual pop and rock songs. And the theory is that every one of these has been carefully engineered in order to create a specific emotional response. And so you can, you can imagine these different songs as having emotional targets and the stages of the hero's journey can also be equated as having like emotions and the hero's journey goes up 
and then it goes way down to all, where it seems like all is lost and then it comes out the other side and it's it's that that creates catharsis right and so if you're going to take people like up and then way down and then way through it they need to know that they've got other that they're in the shit with other people it really helps them get through it you know and and that kind of um we'll tie into this next point I want to make, which is you're talking about how, you know, for so many people, the institutional religions we have now are, they're just not working. They're Mm -hmm. not really, they're not delivering. And they they certainly, because they have such circumscribed ideas of, of what the divine is, right. The, um, the first church of David Bowie is, is based on two basic ideas. God is real or whatever you want to call it, the, you know, Brahman or the all or the, you know, universal mind or whatever. That's a real thing that you can experience, but religions are make-believe, right? All religions are make-believe, which is to say they're, they're based, they're based on stories that are just were recorded for the first time decades after the supposed fact of the historical events that that they they refer to right we've got no evidence for them except for those those distant historical records written by people who were not were not eyewitnesses the only evidence we have for them for their efficacy is the experiences that people have while working on them and yet like the experience of of you know christian mystics and buddhism buddhist mystics and hindus that they're they're wildly varied and if they have like some in some ways like antithetical visions of reality which if we're, if we're not going to assert that one's right and the other's wrong, if you look at them all and they, you say, well, how can they all be right? Well, it's because they're all just interpretations of this. There are ways to interpret this unthinkable reality, right? They're all just games of make-believe. But once you realize that, you're free to make up new games, you know, as long, and as long as they get you up close to that experience, they, they bring you into the presence of that thing, then it totally works. It doesn't matter that it's, that it's made up or quasi-fictional as I, or imaginally true. Those are all sort of equivalent terms in this sort of thing. And, and what that, the implication of that is that the innovational history of religion isn't over and we can start making up new and more efficacious religions. As long as they point, as long as they seem to point in the right direction in terms of like encouraging uh, the kind of of certain moral transformation that we that's associated with with religious true religious experiences, right? And as long as they um, they don't assert that they have a, 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 a an accuracy or a correctness that other ones don't, and that way you can you can go to you can find the one that works for you energetically. You don't have to simply like accept the one that's the culture fosters on you. The what I. I, I called the uh, the cabaret a, uh, a working prototype. It's a working prototype of of an entheotainment. So entheotainment is a portmanteau, right, of entheogen or entheo, like God within, and entertainment, mm-hmm. entheotainment, right. And an entheotainment is a, a theatrical spectacle designed to create an apprehension of the sacred. And when you come to the cabaret, what you get is you get to if you work your way through it you see God through my eyes. I'm the artist who created it. And so I made this thing. And if you go through it, you will see God through my eyes. But if you were to get inspired, Trent, and go out and make one of these things, right? I would, and I went and attended it, I would get to see God through your eyes, right? And then for every one of these, it can get made. That's a new way to experience the divine. And each time you go out and, and, and see, when you learn about how somebody else experiences God, it'll increase your own, understanding of it you know what i mean so all of a sudden everything opens up and it becomes this limitless vista of creativity and there's no more arguing about who's right and who's wrong it's the only argument is is actually there's no argument It's, it's just like does this work does this has this worked for people is it working for them now might it work for me i don't know i'm going to give it a shot and if it doesn't work you try you go on and try something else and eventually you'll find the versions that work for you which it'll bring you into physical proximity with other people who are energetically like you. They like the mm-hmm. same kinds of music. They, they want to experience God in this kind of way, which makes it easier to make social connections and do all those things, you know? And the, the cherry on top is that the work 
it's not just about the ritual it's about or taking the taking the psychedelic and going through it it's all the things you do in your everyday life to prepare yourself physically mentally and emotionally to go in and have the best possible experience and all of a sudden that becomes your reason it becomes an orienting thing in your life for getting in shape and for meditating and for reading up on things and stuff like that you know it all it all fits into this wonderful organic process of self actualization yeah yeah, absolutely. I think that everyone has a personal connection to the divine and religion as we know it now has just become an institutional power. And anytime you get an institutional power, it's going to be corrupted and it's going to be used against the betterment of society. It's going to be used for the few elites to really take control of the population. Um, I think that's why there's such a heavy crackdown on things like psychedelics and stuff like that. Maybe not as much in the past recent five ten years or so it's as it's begun to open up again but i feel like that was a major thing in the 50s and 60s as they were clamping down on that was that people were having these divine experiences and completely breaking out of the reality that society was trying to press them into and i think you're exactly right creating more decentralized churches whatever you want to call them these communities to get together is so beautiful and you talked about vibrations. That's a very real thing. And everyone vibrates on a different frequency. And if you can find the people that you vibrate with the best, and it's a positive thing, like you're going to naturally be inclined to want to interact with those people more and want to form even more of a community with them than you already have. Um, so yeah, I think that's super beautiful. And then if you don't have any more other thoughts on what we were just talking about, I thought it was really interesting uh, you talking about the hero's journey and then also talk us talking about ritualistic practices. I think that there's a massive lack of ritual in society to progress boys into men in any way, shape or form in any way, shape or form. And I think that's why we have such a, I don't want to say obsession, but a over-enthusiastic view of things like gang culture and the military, these aspects of society where masculinity is at its most heightened form uh in the traditional views of masculinity so i think a lot of boys see that as a way to progress into a man i know i certainly did uh that's why i joined the military and that's how i was as a child i was like i was super influenced by gangs and super influenced by the military and it was because these men were exemplifying what i thought in my head it meant to be a man so I think that's really fascinating what you're doing, and I'd like to see where it ends up in the next couple of years. I'm curious if that was something that you were intentional in doing, uh, or if it's something that just kind of came about naturally throughout the process. Well, it, so my background is in strength and conditioning. I used to own a couple okay. of cross. I used to own a couple of CrossFit gyms back on the East Coast, and CrossFit kind of has a a bad reputation now and in many ways deservedly so but um our gyms were different <laughs> our gyms were different <laughs> because because i had a uh before that i was an animator in uh okay. i was a video i was a video game animator and i developed a method for teaching exercise that was based on my background as an animator it was super exacting and really about um like the aesthetic qualities of good movement and I was absolutely unstinting in terms of my of the uh, standards that I imposed, and then I expected everybody to try to meet. Um, and so we, as a result, we had, I think, we're, excuse me, the uh, one of the the uh, the best moving general populations of any gym in the country, because because mm -hmm. we just had these standards that we we would not we would not compromise on. Um, but I what I what I learned from my, for myself by doing, by doing that kind of training and then bringing other people through that training is the value of hard work and, 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 and suffering. And that's, and a transformation truly only comes from suffering and that if you're not willing to get uncomfortable, you're not going to change. And I think that has certainly informed everything of, you know, there were, there were moments when, especially in the early days of doing, no, not just in the early days, there are, there are moments in every one of the ceremonies that I do personally, as I'm, especially as I'm pushing my limits with dosage and stuff that are terrifying and not, not because I'm disoriented or anything, but because you, when you do a lot of high dose work, 
you're working in shamanic reality. And the fact of the matter is that we exist in an infinite ocean of consciousness, a psychic ecology. And just like in any ecology, there's flora and fauna out there. And some of them want to eat you. And, and they get described, they get described as, you know, um, the Shipibo call it shaitana, spiritual witchcraft, or kupakuribo, which are these little crawly creatures, or there's the unquiet dead. Every, every religious tradition has some version of these things. And they call them demons, or they call them hungry ghosts, or whatever. And when you do this work, you come up against them. You do. And then it's really just, it's, it's a matter of you uh, screwing your courage to the sticking place and getting through it, you know, and then the, then the next when it's time for the next ceremony, you go in knowing what could happen because sometimes it's total disaster. Sometimes you run up against things just like in any fight, every once in a while, you'll fight somebody that is, they're, they're too strong and they, you get fucked up. (laughs) Hopefully not mortally, right? Hopefully you come back to fight another day, you get stronger and you come back and fight them. Right. But when you do that on a regular basis, that that develops character. And that is exactly what is missing from our culture today, especially for younger people who are, you know, everything is is all mediated through their phones and swiping and stuff like that. You know what I mean? They 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 avoid this culture of fragility is is allowing people to indulge themselves to stay away from anything that makes them uncomfortable when in fact like diving into and confronting what makes them uncomfortable is exactly what will help them grow as people and so to be able to work through something like that in this context so let me ask you this are are you familiar have you done any reading up on uh jungian psychology yet yes i have okay so you're familiar with concepts like like archetypes yep and and individuation Mm -hmm. Okay. So along with the, uh, I, I mentioned that, so there's, so let's take, let's take the, the, the masculine part of this, of this cabaret. I call it the stereo myth, which is a pun on monomyth, which was Joseph Campbell's term for the, uh, the hero's journey. So it, depending on who you talk to, there was as few as three or as many as 22 stages of the hero's journey. I'm pretty sure. I think I use 11, right? But they all follow the same basic pattern. There's the hero in the everyday world. There's the call to adventure. There's crossing the threshold. There's gathering allies, descent into the cave and et cetera, right? And like I said, I use a, a different song for each of those stages. And there is, um, there's a story that goes in between each song and it kind of explains like what the, what the target emotion is going to be. But another way you can think about it is that each of those stages and each of those emotions can be represented as an archetype, the fool, the mentor, right? The explorer, the soldier, the shadow, the devil, the anima. So you can, and and by, um, do you know the, do you know the phrase active imagination? Yep. Okay. So, so basically what you can do is a form of psilocybin fueled active imagination, where you work with this arc, you, you identify with these archetypes within, within the bounds of each song that you're working with. And then you summon up material. So you imagine yourself as an explorer. you you pretend you're an explorer in that moment. Like, how does it feel to be an explorer? Like standing on the prow of a ship, you know, like looking out into the ocean and not knowing what's ahead of you, but being brave, you know, what does it feel like to be the devil itself and, and have this endless, endless, bottomless hatred for everything? What does it mean to feel like you're, you're, you're running through the woods at night in pursuit of something that everybody at home needs to survive. You know what I mean? Like all these different sort of like archetypal, these archetypes of masculinity. And when you go through the whole thing, you're effectively training up us one version of what it is to be a man, you know? And so that's a, and so you're basically play acting that as an adult, just like the way, like a little kid, like little kids Mm -hmm. like play, do that stuff. Right. But you are, every time you do that and you bring some of that material up and you get it and you, maybe you have a vision or maybe you just have like a, like a moment of intense emotion, you can incorporate that into your conscious idea of yourself and you get a little bit more, you know, if you're, if you're a, a fairly passive person, like imagining yourself as a ferocious, like warrior, is important because it might be, mm-hmm. you might, you might come up in a situation, if you can contact that and within the ritual, then if, if you come up with in a situation in real life that calls for that kind of um, attitudinal stance, then you'll be able to call it up, you know? And what's even better is after you've done all that masculine stuff, then you can go through the feminine stuff and imagine yourself as a woman, which is admittedly like advanced work. But and as you get older, you have to learn to eventually incorporate that, 
the anima side, the feminine side of your character. And of course, the same thing works for women on the other side. They can, by imagining themselves as these different sort of archetypal versions of masculinity, they expand their own character. So this is, it's a, it's a, it's a totally, um, well, as I, as I never tire of saying, it seems to be basically unprecedented. And, um, but it, but the promise of it is amazing because what you're talking about is I think fast forwarding the process of individuation, you're actually like bringing up our typo content. Like, and what would, what may have taken, what may take years of analysis and like dream work and all that kinds of stuff in the course of a year of doing these kinds of ceremonies, I, I really think you can get a lot of that stuff done. Yeah. Yeah, that's beautiful, especially if you can break down the barriers of disbelief, like if people can really go in with an open mind and open themselves up, perhaps they don't believe in Jungian psychology or that we have archetypal energies or that we're directly tethered to the divine mind of the universe, whatever it is, you know, if you could just spend that disbelief, then you can just immerse yourself in that. I think that what you're talking about is, I think you're spot on. I think you're just fast forwarding the individuation process and allowing yeah. these people to interact with these energies at a level that's conscious and in a setting where they're being helped to understand that it's not like they just had a super overwhelming dream or perhaps they were doing active imagination and had the archetypal mother pop up as a symbol and give them these overwhelming emotions but they just don't understand even what it is they're just like man why do i feel like I kind of want to cry or something like that, you know, but yeah. in that setting, it's like, we know what's going on there and they're being helped and being guided through that. And they're around other people experiencing the same thing. And that's beautiful. Yeah. yeah. That's fucking incredible. And and so just to, to circle back to what we were talking about earlier, for somebody who doesn't necessarily believe in those things, all they have to do is pretend they believe them. They just have to make believe like make believe isn't, isn't necessarily a pejorative here. It's what you do. You come in and you pretend like I'm going to, I'm going to, for the, for the length of this ceremony, I'm going to pretend that all this stuff is real. And then by the end of it, you might actually believe that it's real, you know? And then in terms of the, the community, the community is what helps you preserve your belief in those experiences. Cause you can go, as you know, you can go through, have some really intense psychedelic experiences, but a, a couple of weeks later, you might be like, well, I mean, was it just the drugs? Is, is it real? But when you have integrating that, that idea of like, this really happened and it really did seem to mean something is easier when you're around other people who all believe the same thing. And like you said, can provide the information that you need in order to, uh, to interpret your experience. And that's just one way to interpret it, but it's a way that works. Mm -hmm. Like Jungian psychology really, really does work. And it's, yeah. and, and if you're willing to engage with it in this certain kind of way. And so that's why this stuff is a, is a tremendous group effort, you know? So, yep. Yeah, absolutely. I think that play cannot be understated enough. Like we think of play as like, like you were saying, it's like children going out into the yard and playing tag or something like that. But as adults, we should be playing as well and engaging in different activities, whatever they are. Maybe it's not psychedelics at all. Maybe it's just two people getting together, having a dialogue, playing as different characters. And perhaps you have a third person that's uh, facilitating the dialogue and it's allowing you to break up your patterns of thinking the same way psychedelics do in a yeah. sense maybe not to not to the intensity but in a way it's allowing you to do that mm -hmm. and it's allowing you to shift your perspective mm -hmm. of reality and see the perspective of these other people and create more empathy not only to yourself but towards other people around you and uh yeah i feel like as a society we don't play at all or it's no. reserved for hollywood actors or whatever the case is or it's not masculine to to play with your mm -hmm. friends as a grown man or something whatever the case is um i feel like that's really a we've done ourselves a disservice hugely by... we we've we've given play we've assigned play to these uh, these professional players and then we sort of live vicariously through their play we mm -hmm. sit on the couch and watch them go we watch mark hamill play luke skywalker or whatever and we live vicariously with him these mm -hmm. kinds of rituals where you're really taking a risk because you can really have a bad time. You're risking having a bad time. This is you really doing the hero's journey. You're going through it. Like you're, you're, you're following a story of somebody going through the hero's journey, but you're really doing it, you know? And it's um, that kind of play is, is it, it makes you more emotionally flexible, mm -hmm. you know? And yeah. it's um, 
oh shoot, there was one other thing I wanted to say about it. But anyway, that's the, that is the, I, I you raise a terrific point that we have. Oh, this is what it was. There's a concept called deep play. Have you ever heard that? Mm -hmm. I have deep play. Well, deep play is something, there's a really great uh, work. I can't remember the author's name, but deep play is this idea that there are these games that, that people play where the stakes are so high that a rational person wouldn't, wouldn't do it. You know, like, mm -hmm. I don't know, like, like running the bulls in, in yeah. Lisbon, Spain, right? Like that kind of thing. Like it makes no rational sense, but people do it because it, 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 it gives them a kind of liminal experience. Like that pushes mm -hmm. the, the boundaries of their experience. And that's what yeah. like these these kind of like doing a psychedelic ritual in a, in a in an intense environment where you could easily get overwhelmed if you are if if you if your self control lapses is is a form of is a form of deep play. It's for grownups, you know. And that I think is one of the, the the to me the biggest difference. I hope to God this turns out to be the biggest difference between the psychedelic renaissance and what happened in the '60s is that this time we're going to be grownups about it. We're not going to be like running in the streets and like doing, you know, stupid shit and, and just basically being the, the psychedelics turned a lot of people into children, grownups into children in the 60s. And now hopefully we've, we've learned our lessons and realize like, well, this stuff is sacred. And for, for it to be sacred, that means you should really take it seriously. We in our, in our culture do not have a shamanic tradition, but if we're really going to integrate this stuff into our society, we're going to have to, uh, we're going to have to put one together in a hurry and not just borrow yeah. from other cultures. We can learn from other cultures, but we really need to develop our own, our own uh, way of valuing these things. Yeah, absolutely. Education is key. It's like, so some of the most psychedelic introspective trips I've ever been on have been on high doses of edibles. And if I do say like 70 plus milligrams of an edible and just lay on the floor, I will, and practice active imagination, I can get into a mindset where I'm literally just having conversations with myself in my head and exploring my own mind, my own psyche, like interacting with these figures, the shadow potentially, or these other archetypal figures that are surfacing mm -hmm. because of the psychedelic state that I'm in. And then I talk to people who have just mistakenly eaten an edible or something like that. And they're like, man, I had a fucking horrible time. It's like, yeah, you, I bet you did because you ate something that put you in a intensely psychedelic state with zero real understanding of what you were mm -hmm. doing. Like you thought you were taking a hit of a joint or something like that. And it's like, no, this is a completely separate drug. <laughs> yeah. Um, so like examples like that, where it's like, we just need, like as a society, like you're saying, we need to be grownups and we need to stop acting like the war on drugs is a success, especially regarding anything that's psychedelic um, and start educating people as opposed to trying to perform prohibition on something that will never be successful whatsoever. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, I think the tide is turning. I think now, I think it's inevitable that they will be legalized to some extent. The problem is, or at least um, decriminalized. The problem is I was, there's just a, an article in the New York times today about all these um, hedge fund companies and, and pharmaceutical companies that are making these massive investments and, and actually trademarking all these ridiculous things like holding somebody's hand in a, uh, in a, in a psychedelic therapy session, it's, there's a danger that it's going to be taken. It's going to be co-opted in a, in, um, by big pharma. And that would be a terrible tragedy, but that's why it's, it's very important, you know, that, so I'm opening, as I was telling you earlier, a physical church and mm -hmm. I am, I'm in the process of, uh, getting organized as a 501c3 nonprofit. But in order to do that, I basically have to distance for the time being, at least I have to distance myself from psychedelic practice. That's not really going to be a part of the first church of David Bowie phonomancer in terms of its, of its presentation. And luckily there's, mm -hmm. there's so much to what we're doing in terms of, you know, community programs and a weekly service and stuff like that, that don't have to, we don't have to use psychedelics, but we can stake out that space so that when the sacramental use of psychedelics becomes approved, which, will, which in the state, the state of Oregon is probably going to be the first place where that happens. And when that happens, we'll be there and, and ready for it. And we'll have these, you know, hopefully troops of people who are, who've been thoroughly trained and know exactly what they're what they're doing because they've been working on their own, you know, because it has been decriminalized here and it's perfectly fine where, you know, you can work your way through the, the cabaret is basically a um, 
Well, and it's of course, and it's it's full theatrical thing. Is there's people in costumes and dancers and everything, but it's also just a, a series of movies that you could watch. That you could the, all the videos are up on YouTube if you just put mm-hmm. on the playlist and then took your dose and then watched the videos and like had a little dance party in your bedroom watching these music music videos. You could have ninety percent of the experience. You know, it's so people can be doing that stuff and developing uh, their psychedelic skill on their own, and then. When finally the t- the time comes for us to gather legally and do that in groups, it'll should go without off without a hitch. Yeah, absolutely. I think that it it's interesting looking at what psychedelic psychotherapy has been so far. And as you were talking about earlier, it's like you have someone holding your hand, you have your therapist there. It's all safe. It's all kind. It's an insanely sterile environment, and it can be good. And it can also be very detrimental. Um, I think that the best trips that I've had and the most in tune I have felt with the divine is when I am ecstatic in my expression, when I'm moving around, when I'm with friends, when you're enjoying the moment to the fullest you can. And should trauma arise or should some negative emotions arise, you deal with that at the time. But when you're in an environment like what I would imagine these environments, these rooms that they're doing this uh, journeys in is if you're not actively dealing with something that is traumatic, then you're putting yourself in a scenario where you can't fully enjoy mm. the joy that these drugs bring. I mean, if mm. like mushrooms, I mean, the majority of the time, I feel like when I do mushrooms, it's not even necessarily me going on a trip to, you know, find some hidden answer. It's just like experiencing pure ecstasy pure joy to the highest sense that I feel like we possibly can to the point where it's just brimming over, just overflowing out of you Mm. because you're just so ecstatic and being able to share that with other people is so beautiful. So I I really enjoy what you're doing. And then I'm curious if you were into like ecstatic dancing or anything like that before you integrated that into your church, because I feel like that's also something that's really interesting to look into is ecstatic dance and ecstatic expression. And I just feel like you kind of took all this and it just like coalesced into this beautiful, beautiful invention that you created. And I'm going to have one more little tangent here. I think that you were talking about really stepping into that priest role. And I think that's exactly what happened. I think you got a shamanic vision, like you were saying, and the shamanic archetype within you is just so overwhelming and it's beautiful to see someone like really heed that calling and create something well thanks so in regards to the ecstatic dance i i have attended a lot of ecstatic dance things here Mm -hmm. in um in portland and i have an opinion about it okay (laughs) well for so so for one thing um it it would that's it's all been edm stuff Mm-hmm. And which is fun. It's not really my, it's not my cup of tea. I like, I like chord changes and I like, um, I like verses and choruses and bridges and breakdowns and stuff like that. You know, I, I like songs that build to a big climax and then go somewhere. And, but what I especially like is I like singing and I like, I like uh, the, the very specific emotional tenor of, of songs, songs, songs tell stories right? It's not just about heartbreak. It's about a certain kind of heartbreak brought on by a certain kind of situation. You know what I mean? It's not yes. just about, it's not just about psyched up aggression. It's about a certain kind of situation that creates that kind of psyched up aggression. And that can only come when you've got somebody telling you a story through the, um, through the lyrics of a song. Like there's not to say that instrumental music can't, um, can't express emotion. It can, it's just that it tends to be more abstract and a little, a little bit harder to sort of get everybody getting on the same page with the, in terms of like what the emotion of the song is, right? Then the other thing is I have this theory of what I call uh, information density. And when you go to an ecstatic dance thing, everybody's, they're really just doing their own thing. They're, they're not, and a lot of those people aren't actually trying to dance that well. Mm-hmm. They're just getting it out. They're just shaking or, or doing whatever their thing is. And I like to be uh, around people who are trying to do things well. Like when, when you dance, try to, where's the beat? Find the beat. Yep. Do, something, do something interesting with your body that, that works with the rhythms of the music. And then more importantly, or not necessarily, but I, this is how I feel about it. 
if you if you look good doing it, if you're a good dancer, it improves my experience. When I've got people around me who are dancing well, and I can like look at them and try to like pick up little things because they're expressing ideas, and like, oh, I like that move that they're doing. I'm gonna try to do that. That improves my experience. Whereas if people are just kind of lurching around or whatever and just kind of taking up space, it's really not the same thing. You know, it's the difference between I don't know between like a like a like a a, a an endless twenty minute like three chord blues jam and then like a a, a a a tight metal band or somebody or or really good like funk band or something doing like stuff that's like really really disciplined and really like complicated but also exciting. You know, like and that's just energetically that's how I feel and one of the 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 roles that the uh so the the person leading again so in a in a in an empty attainment there's everybody's on on the dance floor they're having they're doing this dance party right but then you've got people on um platforms they're like go-go dancers mm -hmm. that are around the room and there's one person that's sort of leading it and then there's the other ones that they're called the lead phonomancer that's the the, the method i use is called phonomancy is using mm -hmm. like popular music to create visionary trance states but then the rhythm phonomancers are there to also like to show what you're up there, you're not up there to perform. You're there to show the people on the floor how to how they could be dancing to this music. Because especially some rock music, it's it's challenging dancing to a, a, a song like Rush's "The Spirit of Radio," which has a lot of weird odd time things and stuff, can be frustrating to people. But if you can watch other people do it gracefully, you'll get better at it. You know, and that's what the that's what they're all up there for, and they're there for everybody to kind of like. You can participate in, in in any kind of way. The main thing should be closing your eyes and going into your own head and having your you know pulling up material and seeing stuff in your visionary space. But you can also reorient yourself just by opening up and like looking at the spectacle and looking at these people moving well. And if they're dancing well, I really and especially if they're and if they're singing well, like because you're singing along to the recorded tracks. Like if you're singing in tune and in time, it sounds better than just kind of just like shouting and not doing it right. It just it. You know what I mean? It, it just makes it makes yeah. the the everything in the room it, it increases its information density. It's a more intense yeah. experience. Yeah, it's not just channeling raw emotion. It's the actual personification of the divine in this plane of existence. That's like how I see it. That's how I've thought about it. like concerts where the musicians are just so superb, and you can literally feel the energy shift in the crowd as these musicians are personifying beauty for lack of a better term from my end like that's how i see mm -hmm. it they're literally a personification of beauty in this unique instance in time that will never be replicated no matter how many times they play again it will always be a unique personification of beauty and of the divine um so raw emotions are great but we are also human beings and i think that we're here to cultivate wisdom and cultivate consciousness and that's exactly what i feel like you're talking about it's like we can yes. have those raw emotions and channel them but at the same time we're here to do better than that yeah. we're here to take what is giving to us and create something even more beautiful that can then progress us forward as human beings yeah and in an empty attainment there's no performers in the audience everybody's a member of the band including mm -hmm. the people, the participants on the floor. And so what they're, if they're looking up at the, the phonomancers embodying that moment of beauty that you're talking about, that's so that they, the participants can try to do that too. And everybody's trying to do that to the best of their ability. And everybody's at different ability levels, but everybody's at least trying and nobody's mm -hmm. being mindless. Everybody's being mindful, despite the fact that they're on mushrooms, you know, yeah. despite the fact that they're high, they're, they're able to concentrate enough on being like, I'm trying to do this in this, in this state not skill yeah. yep yeah and it's cultivated over time like you're saying and then you get to the point where it's like it's a choose your own adventure after a certain point i feel like as long as you're aware of your set uh like your actual mindset and mm -hmm. knowing potentially like maybe day to day is not the day i'm in a very bad mood i'm in a very negative state maybe i should wait but other than that it's like you get to a point where you can guide the trip itself so like I could drop a hit of acid and I could go sit in a dark room and really explore my mind, or I could hit and drop a hit of acid and go to a concert and have a great time. Or I could take a paddleboard out with some of my friends, go out in the ocean and play in the ocean and watch the sunset and have an absolute blast. And those are some of my favorite trips. Like the, when I lived on a tropical island and 
drop a few hits of acid, take a paddleboard out, go play on the reef with turtles and shit like that. Like stuff that most people would think is insane to do on a psychedelic drug, but it's like exactly like what you're saying. It's like you have that skill set and then you have a baseline activity that everyone can participate in. You know, everyone that you're with can participate in this specific activity and then you can engage in it together. And that's basically what we were doing out there. And those were some of my favorite trips because you knew everyone was safe and it was just this utterly unique experience. And then you watch this magnificent sunset and just watch the universe collapse into the sun as it's going over to the horizon. Mm -hmm. And it's like, you can do this whenever you want, you know, after you get to a certain level and a certain cognitive capability, like you were saying to control yourself, that's the biggest thing. It's like, if you start freaking out, it's like, okay, cool. I know I'm on a psychedelic drug right now. Like I'm going to just kind of take a second, see what's going on. Maybe talk to the homies a little bit, but mm -hmm. you're going to be fine. But the people who can't handle that, or don't have that level of skill over the drug. Like, I feel like that's where people just have these massive breaks, uh, or even potentially hallucinations. Like, I don't know if you've ever had hallucinations on psychedelic drugs, but I never have. And I've done a lot of them as far as like mushrooms and LSD and stuff goes, maybe not DMT or anything like that. I don't have too much experience with DMT. I'm sure that blasts you off into a different reality. But when I talk to people who are like, oh, I saw dragons and elves and stuff running around, like, to me, what I take that as is just like their mind not being able to come to terms with the drug that they're on and then just kind of creating these fanciful realities. Um, not that they're not real. I mean, they're perceiving them as real and as reality, uh, but that's also super interesting to me. Mm -hmm. And that was kind of a little tangent. There really wasn't a question there. I was just kind of. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, it's it, it just goes to show that we what we need to start doing as a culture is cataloging all these different kinds of experiences and then slowly generating an explanatory model that can, that can contain all of them. Mm -hmm. It's going to, it's going to take a while because we don't even know what consciousness is. So yep. let alone like what, what pertur pertur perturbations of consciousness might mean, mm -hmm. you know, so you just, just file that away. Okay. Some people said they saw dragons, not going to tell them that they didn't, maybe they did, yeah. you know, that's, um, I, I, I haven't seen anything like that, but that's because like the last hundred times or so I've done this stuff, it's, it's been in a, it's been in an enclosed ceremonial environment, mm -hmm. you know? Um, and that's all that I'm interested in. I don't really care about what I see with my eyes open. I only care about what I see with my eyes, my eyes closed. Cause I'm, I am all about reaching deeper into, into transpersonal consciousness and trying to come mm -hmm. back every time you go in and you go in deep, you're, you're hoping to come back with a new idea or something, something useful that contributes to the, you know, to the betterment of the world to one degree or yep. another. Yeah. Yeah. And then also not shitting on the wisdom of the past. I feel like that's something that we can fall into easily as well. Like things like agape or different Buddhist teachings and stuff like that. Like, these ideas that surfaced through religions, not necessarily taking the religion, but taking some of the wisdom of these religions and also integrating them into new things being created as well. Uh, I think that that'll be a magnificent path forward. I don't, I don't think there's anything worthy that can be invented that doesn't have those things. It's just a matter of mm -hmm. taking those old ideas and up and putting them in updated terms so that it's a yes. little bit easier to relate to. You know yes, what I mean? But I, like, yes. it's, you know, you can do one, one thing that I've realized with all this stuff that I've done is like the moral prescriptions of Christianity, which seems so like ridiculous, you know, like if you so much as look at a woman with adultery, you've committed adultery with her. That always seems so ridiculous. Like you can't, of course you just think things, you know, but you, after you do this stuff for a while and you realize like, Oh, I need to discipline my thoughts all the time because that improves my self-control so i can do better in ceremonies it's not that there's anything wrong with looking at Pornhub or whatever like like necessarily god says this is wrong it's just not helpful if you're trying to like condition your consciousness in a way that allows you to be let the light the divine light shine through you you mm -hmm. know what i mean it's it, it's it's the same truth it's just put in a in a different kind of way and if anything you realize like oh that's what they were talking about yeah. It wasn't this twisted up thing that it got turned into this kind of more, this more, this like moral scolding and this controlling and stuff like that. It's all just about like, there's, there's different ways to live and some, some ways tie you into this, what I call this game space, right? Like that's the metaphor that I use where you're, you, you, the more you get tied into this game space, the harder it is for you to acknowledge that there's a whole 
infinite reality awaiting us beyond this. You know, so you have to be able to start to disengage and remember all the time, oh, I'm playing a game. This is just a game. And then, and there's worlds and worlds and worlds upon worlds I'm going to be visiting soon enough. And they're all there waiting for me, you know, anyway, that's uh, yeah, yeah, it's gotta, it's gotta, it has to tie back to those old things. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I agree. And I mean, that's exactly what the archetypal theory is. I feel like is like, these are all just patterns of the divine consciousness that we're interacting with and then just consistently updating and trying to explain in a symbolic manner because mm-hmm. we're just not at the p- point yet where we can actually cognitively perceive what it is we're even talking about so taking those s- continuous steps like you were saying it's like you every time you go into a trip you try to bring back a tidbit of knowledge like that's exactly it it's just micro steps up mm-hmm. the chain of progressing consciousness as a whole and then eventually hopefully coming back into oneness with each other and then with the universe itself and then who knows maybe the fucking infinite mind reforms and then splits again the very next instant and we just do it all over again or you go on to a different part of the multiverse or a different realm of reality but it's like while you're here experience the five senses to the fullest ability you can and try to embody the most positive aspects of humanity as you possibly can and i feel like that's what that's what jesus's teachings was like that's what agape was was unconditional love like not creating a system to follow a man but trying to create a system where you are embodying the ideals of that man to the fullest capability and then you are yourself becoming jesus or becoming the buddha or whatever the case is you are a living embodiment of those ideals and then you go on to create more and more people living the exact same way Mm -hmm. that's what you want it's not there's a part in the show where it says something like the goal is not the return of of the christ but the emergence of 10 billion christs 10 billion Mm -hmm. people who who can shine with the light of the divine within and that's that's the i i consider all religions to this point to be failures because they're they're mass enlightenment strategies that haven't achieved their goals which means that there's time for new mass enlightenment strategies you know, and so here's mine. Where's yours? You know what I mean? It's sort of like, like, like if you find a strategy, there's like, oh, I like that. I'm going to, I'm going to help with that. Like, let's do, let's, let's do this, you know, then awesome. And then if a better idea comes to that, if, or if not, keep working on your idea, but they can be working in parallel. There's no, it's, if, if there's any kind of competition, it's just a friendly competition because we're trying to, trying to save the world, right? We're trying to, it's obvious Mm -hmm. that, that we have to find a way to pull together as a species to respond to the existential threats that that are waiting for us. And so I, I honestly think that group psychedelic rituals are going to be the way that will that will happen. It's it gives you it, it, it instead of every instead of having to go sit in a cave for 20 years or a monastic cell for 30 or 40 years within just a few years of really intense work, you can, you can truly open up to this stuff and, and reorient, reorient yourself to transpersonal reality. And the more that are the community of people who are doing that grows and the more people do this work and bring back these great ideas, the clearer an idea we'll get of our true ontological position and what it real, what, where we really are vis-a-vis the source of our existence. Hell yeah. I love it, man. I love it. Well, I don't want to take up too much of your time today. You got any closing thoughts, ideas, anything you've been playing around in your head with? Um, just this, like I said, the idea of the, uh, well, I'm calling that, that concept of, um, so once I realized that, that religions were make-believe, you know, games of make-believe, I came up with a concept I call a para-reality game, like paranormal, right? Or paralegal, mm-hmm. para, para-reality. And a para-reality game is a complete out-of-the-box system of practices and beliefs that enable and condition experiences of the sacred while creating community in which those experiences may be anchored, right? And so what we do here at the First Church of David Bowie is we play a game. It's called Phonomancer. And it's that's it. Phonomancer is a para-reality game. It's a system of practices and beliefs that does exactly what I just said. And there'll be other games too, you know, but it's all just a matter of like, come up with fun games. 
And, and if yeah. you're not, not, not everybody can do it, you know, it's like, it's, but if you can start and if you got an idea, work with your friends and develop it and then try to get other people involved and build communities around it. That's what I'm talking Absolutely. about. Absolutely. It's serious work, but that doesn't mean it can't be fun. Exactly. If it does, if it's not fun, it's not going to work. Exactly. The, uh, the, uh, the, the service that we're going to be perform weekly service we're going to be providing is called the discotheque at the end of the universe. And it's this sort of like, that's the idea is that this is this whole thing is this unfoldment of the goddess's plan. And what, what the eschaton looks like the end of time is this universal disco dance party. <laughs> that's, <laughs> Hell that's, yeah. that, that's what the kingdom of heaven looks like. <laughs> so, you know, that's the, it's, if it's not fun, I ha so actually there's this uh, here very, very, very briefly, I'll say this, is, I'll leave you with this final thought. Okay. Where is it? Um, oh, here's what I'll say. I'll read. This is a paragraph from my book, the phonomantic method and its empty attainments set chemically induced religious experiences in the context of a new kind of faith that is no less earnest or life-changing for being self-aware that it is quasi-fictional. It's a game that becomes reality the moment it puts you up close and personal with the goddess. Credo, kia iokis et quia operator, which means I believe because it's fun and because it works. That's all I need to say. I love it. I absolutely <laughs> love it. Sean, I can't thank you enough for your time, man. I really appreciate it. Thank you for the opportunity to, to speak with you, Trent. I really enjoyed it. Absolutely. Shy Mansell, ladies and gentlemen.